0: FutureThink CEO Lisa Bodell ranks among the top 50 speakers worldwide and is the best-selling author of Kill the Company and Why Simple Wins. She's a global leader on simplification, collaboration, and innovation, whose keynotes leave audiences inspired to change and arm them with radical, simple tools to get to the work that matters. Lisa brings a compelling perspective to the sought-after topics of simplification and innovation. She speaks to over a hundred thousand people a year year. A thought leader and serial entrepreneur, her transformational message has inspired executives at top-ranking organizations such as Google, Cisco, Citigroup, and the U.S. Navy War College. Lisa provides a provocative yet practical approach that enables organizations and individuals to eradicate the unnecessary complexity and time sucks that hold them back from more meaningful work and allows simplicity to become their new operating system. She has also contributed her expertise to a wide variety of media. She is a monthly contributor to Forbes and has frequently appeared on media, including Fast Company, Wired, The New York Times, Inc., Bloomberg Businessweek, Harvard Business Review, the Huffington Post, Fox News, and CNN. She has taught innovation at both American University and Fordham University and has served on the board of advisors of several organizations, including the Global Agenda Council for the World Economic Forum, the United States National Security Agency, and the Association of Professional Futurists. In this podcast, I sit down with her and she shares some practical tips to get your organization to simplify. That is to stop doing the busy work that is not strategic. So you spend more time focusing on that work that actually matters. How to run a kill your company exercise and why doing so can unleash innovation and new thinking. Why changing culture should not be a top-down process. Indeed, it should neither be top-down or a process at all. And what works instead? Ladies and gentlemen, Lisa Bodell. Lisa, thank you so much for being here with us.
1: Thank you. I'm thrilled. I appreciate it.
0: So I like to open up every interview with the same question here. And however you want to answer is fine. Just to give people a chance to know you a little bit personally, complete this sentence for me. If you really know me, you know that.
1: I'm going to answer both professionally and personally. So you know that I really like flipping the script and challenging the status quo. I'm provocative. Personally, if you know me, you know that I want to travel to every country in the world. I believe that getting out and seeing the world is super important to being more strategic, more innovative, and just a better person.
0: That's great. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, of course. Now, you've been working as a futurist, as an innovation person. You came from kind of the creative side, but now you have gotten to interact with companies and look at every aspect from marketing and culture and people and leadership. So I want to focus here on strategy. What is your definition of strategy?
1: I think it's a couple things. I think metaphorically, it's the compass for how we travel. And frankly, I think for most teams, it's the definition of meaningful work. It tells them what they should be spending their time on and similarly what they shouldn't be. So a good strategy really helps people define what is the valuable things that we should be doing. What is the innovation? What is the growth? And a bad strategy is people don't know how to connect to it. They don't know how to use their time with intention. So that's kind of the litmus test that I use. Does this define for my team what the meaningful work is?
0: I love that. I love it. And now I see clearly the linkage between strategy and some of the work that you're well known for. You've written two books and let's talk a little bit about your book on simplification. What I kind of got out of reading it was there are lots of things that we know are strategic, but we're spending a lot of time doing things that aren't strategic.
1: Yeah, not even close.
0: So can you talk just a little bit about that? Sure.
1: The thing about it is, you know, my two books, the first one was Kill the Company. And we can talk about that in a little bit because that's provocative. But while simple wins happen, was because a lot of people do strategy, but they can't get to it. I believe that simplicity is the front end of strategic planning and innovation. If you don't have the time or the space to be strategic, you're never going to get there. And most people are drowning on a daily basis in things that are not meaningful, that are not valuable. And they do it unintentionally. They do it because they want to go to one more meeting or they feel like they've got to be on one more call. And I think what that does is, that, that makes them less about being strategic every day and just about executing their calendar. So simplicity to me is directly tied with strategy, right? Simplicity gives you speed, it gives you space, and it gives you the time to do more valuable work. If you're operating with complexity, you will never execute on your strategy,
0: never. So what are people doing when they're not doing the things that are strategically important? What are the activities?
1: <laughs> I ask people, what do you spend your day doing? What's your daily work? What do you think they say? What do you think the answers are?
0: I guess they're spending a lot of times in meetings. They're spending a lot of times managing their emails, that kind of stuff, I would
1: think. You can watch so many of my videos and I'll tell you the first two things out of everyone's mouths, no matter the country, the company, regulated, unregulated, is meetings and emails. My joke is, I don't know anyone that was hired for their amazing email skills or their ability to just kill a meeting. I mean, no one has asked that, but that's where they spend their time. They spend their time in the work of work. So people will argue with me at the executive level, well, those things are necessary. Yes, but not all of them are. And if they were, people would say that all their meetings were great and all their emails were amazing and they don't. So I think we're wasting our time not just spending our time. So people are drowning in unnecessary stuff that is not strategic, that is not facilitating growth, that is not innovative. And so once they simplify and they actually think it's okay and have permission to get rid of, then they can do more of the good stuff.
0: Yeah. So I'd love to just tease on that a little bit. We've had Alex Osterwalder on this podcast and he talked about, you need to increase the kill rate on your innovations. The idea Idea that strategy is what you don't do and what you consciously choose not to do. I think that our audience understands that and appreciates that. But what's some practical things that you can do as someone who doesn't have a big team, doesn't have a lot of formal influence to encourage a culture that allows people to say no to things?
1: I really appreciate that. I think Alex is right. It's about how do you focus on the meaningful stuff versus trying to do everything, right? You only place your bet so much and put good effort into a few things. My add on to that is I don't think one, everyone can be allowed to kill ideas, right? That's usually just just in a small group. Second of all, I think that people can't even get to ideas. They can't get to the unique because they've got to get rid of the other stuff that's not valuable first. I can't even have an idea brainstorming original session with my team until I can get hours back or space to think of those things. So my feeling is, and we can talk about this, I'm big on the kill. I won't kill the company. I talk about killing stupid rules. I talk about stopping things because people need to think about the value of less versus more. And they have to stop thinking that value just comes from more. Value comes from focus and speed. What we really want to teach people to do is give permission to challenge the assumptions around things and get rid of things that are not working. Until we really give people ways to do that on every level, not just the bosses, and we give them the metrics and we actually reward them for it, people won't change because it's driven by fear. That's the issue, right? Everyone's got ideas, but they can't get to those because they're scared. Trust and fear are inversely related. So more fear means less trust. And so you asked me specifically, what can people do on an individual level, right? Not the bosses. One of the things I talk about speaking of killing is killing stupid rules. What's great about it is you can go to your boss and position it as an efficiency exercise, right? Bosses are great about saving money and killing hours. That's part of it. But what really it is, it's a productivity and focus focus exercise. It's an innovation exercise. You get people in a room and you tell them with the boss, hey, if we could kill any two rules that are holding us back, if we could get rid of any time sucks so we could better focus for the boss, what would they be? And then the boss is all over it, right? It's free. It saves them time and money and it gives them speed. I have never seen a boss argue with killing stupid rules unless they tried to kill something that was regulated or illegal. So (laughs) that's the only exception.
0: You have so many great stories, examples, metaphors, I find. I really appreciate that about your work that you have used to influence through informal influence some really large, big companies and brands. Can you share with us a go-to story example, argument, statistic that would have you speaking to a leader and have the leader say, yes, actually, we need to make it okay for people to say no. We need to make it okay for people to fail, to try and say, hey, that didn't work work or say no to that meeting, what's your go-to?
1: We need more time. There's so many stories. That's the good news. Let me give you anecdotally one where Albert is the CEO of Pfizer. Great guy. It is no mistake that Pfizer was able to come up with a vaccine quickly. It's not a mistake. It's purposeful because they focus on simplicity. Simplicity is a strategic tenant of their innovation plan. Albert knew this. He knew this well before COVID. They measured how many meetings they could get rid of and how many rules our team helped them with this around the world they could kill. And what was fascinating about it is when you ask people what they want to get rid of, it's not rules. It's meetings and emails and reports and the daily stuff. So he told people to say no to meetings. Now this gets to the what can the boss do versus individuals. And he was excited, right? So the executives, we're great, aren't we amazing leaders? Everyone can say no to meetings. A month later, he realized everyone was still spending all their time in meetings. He's like, you guys asked, I gave you permission what the what's going on? He talked to one of his lieutenants and the lieutenant said because they had a level of trust with each other, no one's saying no to meetings because you say yes to all of them. And so as you can say, it. It's kind of like telling someone they're empowered. We all know what empowered means, empowered to like do the work of 10 people. But if you really model the behavior like Albert started to do, then people change. So that's one of the things about saying, you can't just say it, you've got to live it and you got to model it because people are driven by fear. I'll also tell you it's interesting because people are skeptical. Skepticism breeds complacency. Your enemy at work is not complexity. Your enemy is the result of that. It's complacency, which means they're just not going to try and challenge it anymore. There's no way to Alex's point, they're even going to be get to say no to ideas because they're not even going to try anymore. No one's ever going to do them. Who cares? And I was in Germany once. This is kind of a bigger example. I was there with a strategic planning session. This was at a nuclear power company. You know, they're regulated and they had us come in to talk about strategic planning for the future of energy. I've got a bunch of futurists on my team. And I realized as we were starting this innovation brainstorming conversation, no one cared. No one cared. It was one of those moments as a presenter where you're just drowning. Everyone's on their email. I had them all take a break and I said to the leader, <laughs> what's going on? He said, it's not you. It's just people don't really believe that they have the power to affect change. And I thought, huh, here's where we are. We tell people to come together. We're going to come up with ideas. They have permission to do it, but they truly don't believe the culture will support it or that they are empowered to do so. So what this tells me is that we're in a state where strategic planning has become political. It's not effective. And unless people really find the time and headspace space to do it, they're going
0: through the motions. You mentioned change. And I think what's really jumped out for me of many things of your work is we tend to broadly think of change as a top down process. And I've heard you say, hey, it's not top down, it's middle out or middle up or something like that. And it's not a process, but it's a toolkit. Could you describe those two distinctions for us? Yeah.
1: A couple things about change. Change, first of all, I think everyone thinks change happens. Let's take COVID, for example. They think it's like a stick of dynamite. It's really a dimmer switch. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Stick of dynamite is boom, COVID, we got to change. We're forced to change, burning platform. COVID was not a stick of dynamite. It was here, it was here, it was here, it was here. And it really just depends on how bright the signal needs to be before we choose to recognize it. So the people that are good at recognizing change earlier and are agile and trained to do it are the ones that get ahead. They can create the change, not react to it. The thing that I also think is interesting about change is, everyone asks me is it top down or is it bottom up? I say it's middle out. And the reason why is this. You need permission from the top, without a doubt. Otherwise, you're banging your head against a wall. You need it from the bottom up because that's where the groundswell happens. You need everyone to execute that plan. But the middle out is where the magic happens. Your culture at your company is not the CEO. It's your leaders every day. It's the team that you work in. It's the manager that you go to to make daily decisions. If you start to activate those managers who are looked up to by the bottom and respected from the top, they are the ones that can best affect change. And by the way, they're the ones that are the most tired. So you want to energize them and empower them to really get into that strategy and be empowered to make it happen on a ground level.
0: Makes a lot of sense. So I've got so many more questions about this introduction of the principles, the culture that allows for simplicity. However, I know we have limited time with you. So I want to pivot a little bit and maybe we come back to that to talk a little bit about Kill the Company. I think that the SWOT, Strength, weaknesses, Opportunities and Threats, it does anchor you a little bit in past to future thinking rather than future to present thinking. But you talk about SWAT as also introducing a different kind of complication or mindset. Tell us, what is that exercise of kill the company and how does a SWOT help or not help that?
1: So let me actually, I'm going to reverse it for you and tell you why the SWOT made me come up with kill the company. So the thing I feel is happening with strategic planning is it needs to be more provocative and honest. We're stuck in this construct of everyone knows what a SWOT is because it's a framework and we can all look at it and address it and it's a nice way for everyone to compare everyone else's businesses. The problem is it's become a real political exercise. The joke is strategic planning begins every year when people open up last year's PowerPoint and change the date. Ready, we're ready to go. Right. And what you see with SWATs is it becomes political because people they spend all their time on their strengths. Like there's just so many amazing strengths. And then there's weaknesses, but they're not really weaknesses. They're opportunities. Aren't they? They're opportunities, right? And then the opportunities aren't really threats. And so at some point you're like, what the? It's just about language. So I came up with Kill the Company because people weren't being provoked. What I did is I had a very bad experience with a group that was just not stretching their minds. And I said, listen, let's do a creative exercise. And how it works is you get people into groups within their business by function. So at one table, for example, if you're a company, you're going to have procurement, you're going to have the strategy people, you'll have the logistics people, or you can do it by level. It's up to you. And you have each table identify who their number one competitor is. So if you're a small company, just break them into groups and identify a competitor.
0: What if you're an internal function? What if you're like the legal function or the finance function?
1: And that happened. Like if you're the legal function, the people you compete with might be the ones internally that hold you back, or they might be another company that you wish you were like. It might be another place that you wish you worked at because they do X, Y, Z. And they better facilitate their role at another company than you do. So what you do is you pretend then that you are that number one competitor. You kind of put that hat on, you become that competitor, and you put your function, your role, your job, your team out of business. You make them obsolete. So we're practicing proactive obsolescence to identify what the real weaknesses are, to focus us on what really matters, and then to turn those things around, either on the internal function, give them off to someone else, get rid of them, or turn them on our competition. And the reason that's healthy is because it gives people a real competitive attitude to be forced to identify their weaknesses, not politically cover them up and to really focus on what matters the most.
0: I can see that it really activates their competitive nature, I think, as well, that you would see in executives, right?
1: Yeah, and the competitive nature is really interesting. And then you can kind of look at it and go, God, what, how are we weak? And where should we shore it up? It's the same thing. It's kind of like we focus on doing more, but we don't realize what holds us back. We focus on all our strengths, but we don't really focus on our weaknesses. So I think kill the company has to happen before that SWAT happens. It should be the front end of strategic planning.
0: So if I'm planning a strategic session, it's like a three-day off-site. we going to do this exercise, how would you suggest a chief strategy officer structure that? How much time do we designate some people to be the ultimate competitor or is the whole team playing the competitors? Just give us some practical tips on how to work that into the agenda.
1: I do a half day on it. I think what you do is you have the chief strategy officer or someone senior facilitating this because you want to send the signal that this is important and I am mandating that you do this. You have to identify weaknesses. It should be done first thing, not last. And you start the exercise by breaking people into a few different teams, right? Because you want competing ideas, two or three groups, maybe you give them, I don't know, five minutes to identify who their competitor is and tell them that they have to put the team out of business with no restrictions, none. Because what happens if the minute people have restrictions, the ideas are small. Well, we got to shorten our meetings versus we've got to sell this part of the business. We have too many people here. Are pricing models wrong? And I would also give them parameters around what kinds of things they should brainstorm. Should they be looking at headcount, products, pricing, process, everything. Let them brainstorm for 30 or 40 minutes and then see what they come up with.
0: Great. I love it i want to ask the same question, but applied to why simple wins. If someone wants to start implementing that shift towards simplicity and we have a three-day offsite, we've got a chunk of time, how do we start that? Get people thinking about what do we stop doing or what do we start doing? That kind of thing.
1: A couple things. Like If it was me, I would have my strategic planning start with killing the company. Then I would start to think about what are the strategic focuses we want coming out of that, just two or three, and have everyone force rank them. I'd make it really collaborative. And then there's another, exercise they can do around simplicity at the end. Not just talking about at the end of your three-day, where are we going to focus, but also mandating that as part of the strategic plan, people have to come back and tell them or tell the CSO, whoever it is, what they're going to stop doing. So the exercise is called stop it. You've killed the company and identified weaknesses. You've done your SWOT now that's more focused maybe. And you're going to give people permission to say, this is how we're going to move forward. But to do that, we also are going to commit to stopping doing the following things. The reason that's also important is because that tells people that once we agree to focus on these things, no more excuses. You said you were going to stop doing these things. Did you stop doing these things? And it's a powerful exercise to build stopping it into the framework of strategic planning.
0: I love that your work is just so practical and grounded in a very broad, deep experience. So I know we're reaching the top of our time with you. So I've got a few kind of pointed questions here. Risk aversion comes up over and over again. And you know, you talk about how often leaders aren't really leading they're managing, and that's creating risk aversion. Can you just talk us about, because there is already an awareness that we are risk averse and that is preventing us from innovating. But what are the first steps to addressing that risk aversion?
1: I think that it's defining what a risk is. I mean, I have to say, I feel like everyone says, we want people to take a risk. And I'll say, have you defined it? And they'll say, what do you mean? And I'll say, you can't just tell people to take a risk. You know, there's fear. So the idea is defining risk gives them guardrails, not handcuffs. And people think of risk as yes or no versus within these boundaries as a team or as a leader defining and communicating what an okay risk is, what we call smart risk. And what does that mean? Is it time, money, staff, okay to do, permission to do, as well as identifying what a stupid risk is, because it's a lot easier for people to know what a bad risk is than a good risk. And so by defining both a smart risk and a stupid risk, you give people the guardrails upon which they feel safe and permitted to move forward. And you'll get better innovations. You'll get less of the safe ones. And you'll stretch people to give you more of the disruptive ones. This is all about permission, right? And defining it within guardrails gives them that.
0: Yep, got it. Again, I have so many more questions. I want to end with a question of just how people can connect with you, learn from you.
1: Well, the best place to find me is on LinkedIn. That's a great place where we can connect and you'll learn about what's happening with FutureThink as well as with me. The other thing you can do is go to our website, futurethink.com. There's a lot of free resources there where you can challenge the status quo or learn how to simplify. So I hope the listeners take advantage of that so they can start really getting to that meaningful work. Again, it's futurethink.com and email us at innovate at futurethink.com if you want to learn more about how the techniques
0: work. Well, thank you so much for being with us and for the work you do. Great to have you here.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me here today to share some of my thoughts as well as thank you to the listeners for giving me their valuable time. I hope it was practical and I hope they found it valuable too.
0: Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Nest, our editor, and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of OutThinkers.